the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. The crypto crash of the last two months has exposed fatal fissures in the architecture of the more experimental crypto projects. There's not a lot of good news to cling to. Just as we were coming to terms with the collapse of the Terra USD stablecoin, we found out that crypto lender Celsius Network filed for bankruptcy and laid off 500 employees. Just last October, Celsius raised $500 million from investors and was offering yields of 17% a year. Terra Luna went even better with yields of 20% a year. What dragged Celsius down was a fatal flaw in its business model. It lent Ethereum to clients after taking staked Ethereum as collateral. When Ethereum came crashing down, so too did staked Ethereum, and there went the collateral. Centralized finance firms like Three Arrows Capital and Voyager filed for bankruptcy. Closer to home, Invictus Alpha and its parent company, New World Holdings, have been placed in liquidation in the British Virgin Islands, due in large part to excessive exposure to the collapsed Terra Luna stablecoin. Though headquartered in the Cayman Islands, these companies were managed out of Cape Town. The crisis didn't end there. Coinbase, one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world, dropped a bombshell, advising clients and regulators that in the event of a bankruptcy, the crypto assets held in custody on behalf of customers could be subject to bankruptcy proceedings, and such customers could be treated as general unsecured creditors. This should terrify crypto investors. In the event of bankruptcy, we'd like to know, are your crypto deposits ring-fenced from the general swarm of creditors? Maybe we're not so certain anymore. Well, joining us to discuss this is an old friend, Vihan Olafia, digital asset lead and partner at Mazars. Welcome, Vihan. Help us make sense of this. We see bankruptcies all around us in the crypto space, and the revolutionary movement that was imagined by Bitcoin founder Satoshi Nakamoto seems to be crumbling. What is going on? Thanks so much for having me again, Kieran. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, there's definitely some blood on the dance floor this morning. Also, some interesting topics that you mentioned in the intro uh, that we can definitely touch on. But I think if we first look at the market and the reason for the downturn, we can definitely point finger at the DeFi sector uh, being one of the factors there um, for the slump we find ourselves in. So we saw the rise of decentralized finance in 2020, which caused the overall market to increase and substantially lead to the downturn this year. I don't necessarily believe that the downturn is a result of the DeFi concept in general, but more so to the element of human error in, this, in, in most cases. So we saw the news yesterday of Celsius filing for bankruptcy as a result of being undercollateralized or uncollateralized. Um, and of course, that bankruptcy filing was made available to the public. And it was interesting to see some South African and South African-based virtual asset service providers being listed as creditors, uh, which sets the stage for an interesting couple of months to come as well. For staying with Celsius, the concept of using stake ETH uh, in any case is a bit ludicrous from, from my point of view because of the fact that stake ETH cannot move from, from the Ethereum 2.0 chain and there are limited secondary markets only linked to, to the exchange that create that secondary market. And I actually had that conversation or rather philosophical debate with one of my partners in the U.S., a while ago when I was assisting on, on a large uh, crypto engagement that we do on that end, 
um, about the value of, of stake in because its inability to, to move until Ethereum 2.0 merges with the mainnet, of course, does, does play a certain role in terms of the value there. And, and of course, if, if Ethereum 2.0, the project would have been dumped, of course, that stake tokens could also potentially be lost. So there is some factors to take into account there um, when using something like a, a locked-in currency such as Ethereum to, to be utilized as collateral. Of course, you mentioned the liquidation of, of Invictus Alpha and New World Holdings. Now, of course, I've also heard the rumors subsequent to the whole uh, Terra Luna debacle, which in my mind could only have happened if, if, if they were operating outside of their mandate and collateralizing themselves with, with assets not correlating with the, the customer investment holdings. Of course, to make matters even worse for them, I saw in the, um, in the bankruptcy uh, filed by by Celsius that um, there's two of the funds actually sitting there of, of 17.6 million US dollars uh, that that they had invested in in Celsius. But so so back to to your question. So if, if you look at the DeFi sector, DeFi businesses, and DeFi protocols as a whole, they are doing exactly what traditional brick and mortar banks are doing. They they lend and borrow and attempt to expand their balance sheet and create wealth. For, with a facilitation of, of moving and storing wealth, but banks do so under strict regulations to avoid uh, what we exactly what we saw in the DeFi space now more recently. So to answer your question about Satoshi, he created Bitcoin to facilitate this peer-to-peer -peer payments uh, over the internet without the need for an intermediary or to trust the person that you're dealing with. And again, he's proven right in his vision because we witnessed over the last several months a probably more result of, of human error, maybe driven by, by fear and greed, and not a result of, of flaws in the general concept of blockchain technology or, or cryptocurrency as a whole. You mentioned the, the trigger for this really was the collapse of Terra Luna. Now, unlike other stable coins like USD Tether or USD Coin or True USD, at uh, Terra was not fully backed by liquid assets. These stable coins are supposed to be backed one-to-one -one by U.S. dollars or something very liquid approaching U.S. dollar liquidity. Terra Luna relied instead on a separate crypto called Luno, which provided collateral so long as the market hype kept driving the Luna coin higher in price. And that hype disappeared in May when the 20% yields on offer just turned out to be unsustainable. And that dragged Terra and Luna down to virtually zero, destroying about $40 billion in value. Stable coins were the fastest growing subset of the cryptocurrency universe. Now you can hear the demands growing daily for more rigorous audits to make sure these stable coins are backed by real assets. Are we seeing evidence of this? And will stable coins emerge from the ashes of this crash, do you think? Well, so that's a fair question. I think the whole Terra Luna debacle made everyone question stablecoins, but also made people realize the difference between an algorithmic stablecoin and, and an asset or fiat-backed stablecoin. So stablecoins are something phenomenal in the sense that it solved the third pillar of money. Of course, the three pillars of money being a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. Now, stablecoins allow cryptocurrency to be seen as this unit of account by removing the volatility, therefore allowing people to price goods and services in a, in a cryptocurrency and also accepted payment. So it basically, it, it, it took out that volatility. So they did exactly what other cryptocurrencies do in terms of moving over the internet and, and having all the same functions, but 
without that element of volatility. So it's also important to understand that there's also a human element at play here. I wrote a piece um, about a month or two ago that was also published on MoneyWeb where I discussed the potential risks of a, of a stablecoin issuer in instances of, of liquidation or bankruptcy and the potential solutions by implementing uh, transparency, independence, and segregation. Now, of course, when I when I wrote that article, I definitely, definitely didn't have Celsius in mind and expecting to happen what happened. But what I discussed in this piece will, will have this exact same effect on Celsius and their creditors. So the issue is where fiat-backed stablecoins are not pegged by fiat anymore and where stablecoin issuers make speculative decisions with customer funds which may pay off to the advantage and the benefit of the stablecoin issuer. But if things go south, it's at the cost of the holder of that stablecoin who's sitting there under the assumption that his or her coin's intrinsic value was guaranteed. Now, it's, it's therefore a fine line that these stablecoin issuers need to walk when holding customer funds. Personally, I don't think stablecoins are going anywhere, but issuers of stablecoins need to pull up their socks and react to what we've seen in the market and to keep their customers' best interests at heart. Because if, if this goes the wrong way, I believe a, a lot of... Um, a lot of value and, and a lot of trust can be lost in the, in the crypto market as it currently stands. Of course, it's not just stable coins, but all crypto companies are going to have to provide some assurance that their cryptos are custodied on the exchanges and that they're safe from bankruptcy and security breaches. There's no doubt we're entering the age of digital assets. That's beyond question. So it's fair to demand that crypto companies take the same precautions as banks. Not so? Would you agree? Uh, you've actually hit the nail on the head there. The key takeaway here is for custody solutions and exchanges to have proper security and to be collateralized. Not collateralized in the sense of holding, uh, of, of holding assets that exceed the liabilities, but to hold assets that correlate to the investments, uh, to the customer's investment holdings. You know very well that I've been advocating the collateralization and independent verification of customer funds for years now, and this is exactly why. If we want this industry not only to succeed but flourish, we need to create trust, and it seems the only way that we'll be able to succeed in this is to have the same type of regulations that banks have when it comes to uh, borrowing and lending models in the crypto space. I think it's also worth noting that the projects that crashed, you know, talking about Celsius Network and Voyager and, and BlockFi and so on, these were centralized and not decentralized. Now, decentralized finance or DeFi exchanges like Aave and Uniswap, they survived because there's no human making any lending decisions. And these operations are driven by smart contracts, and they performed exactly as they were expected, liquidating loan collateral when the crypto prices crashed. I guess that's one of the bright spots in all of this. But the point I really wanted to get to is, where does this leave the future of crypto lending? Is this in crisis? Is this going to rebound? Uh, or is this just a, a, a way that we, we've, got to, we've got to smash the house down to see how we can build it better again? So I think there's, there's the old saying that there's nothing sure in life except for debt and taxes. And I think they need to factor in smart contracts there as well. Because you're 100% correct. This is the wonder of smart contract. It's self-executing. It's transparent. It's trustless. It completely removes that human element. So lending and borrowing still remains one of the 
biggest fundamental functions in any financial world. And I don't necessarily believe that crypto lending is going anywhere. So collateralized lending still makes complete sense if the lending is done using liquid assets with actual market value as collateral. So lending in the form of, of automated market makers is still a fundamental necessity for decentralized exchanges and, and um, supplying them with liquidity. The issue comes in where intermediaries make speculative bets with customer funds, and that has a subsequent uh, knock-on effect. And this is exactly what we witnessed with the U.S. Uh, housing market back in 2008 that led to the global financial crisis. You have an intermediary that takes investors' money, diversifies it by investing and lending it to another. That second intermediary diversifies it investing and lending it to another. And at a certain point, when there is a collapse of the third intermediary's business based on certain risk factors, it affects that second intermediary, the first intermediary, and eventually the investor that thought his or her investments was safe. So I can only imagine the knock-on effect that Celsius's bankruptcy will have on creditors and other virtual asset service providers that could possibly also enter bankruptcy. I would imagine with all the bankruptcies that we been hearing about in the crypto space. This is good for people like yourself who do proof of reserve audits. Is your phone ringing off the hook? So, so we've been fortunate uh, to stay busy and, and our portfolio of crypto-related businesses at Mazars continue to, to grow at a sustainable rate. Uh, and of course, there is a, a lot of virtual asset service providers coming to the realization that they need to give their customers some sort of comfort that they are either collateralizing customer funds that or they're not acting outside of their mandate or they're not holding asset for speculative purposes or, or, or clients funds are using for speculative purposes. So yes, we, we have been issuing a couple of one-sort proof of reserve reports or, or agreed upon procedures or factual findings for clients and continue to do so um, to issue these, these proof of reserve reports on a quarterly basis for some of our, our other legacy crypto clients. But it's also important to know that, that most virtual asset service providers in South Africa, of course, are technically speaking obligated by the Companies Act of South Africa to be audited. So that does play in our favor as well. But there's a crucial area here that, that, that the listeners need to understand is, is there's a regulatory requirement for them to be audited and therefore also creating that, that element of, of safe. But of course, this more applicable to, to, to centralized exchanges. But it's not all doom and gloom in the world of crypto, as we've seen over the last couple of months. We've met with several new clients looking to open either new exchanges in South Africa and competing in the market. Uh, we've seen various new business models. We've seen the incorporation of, of crypto-related funds uh, and also the anticipation of regulations to change to incorporate these funds uh, to a listed type of security. We've also been working with other international resource offices in growing their market share and assisting in international virtual service providers. We're also seeing some integration of cryptocurrency into legacy businesses, which is quite interesting, and the incorporation of crypto into fintech businesses where crypto will be used as means of payments or a central ledger for record keeping. And we also see a lot of activity um, from the open banking perspective, but also neobanks. And we're really expecting this to take off in South Africa in the near future as soon as regulations adopt itself as well. But I can definitely tell you the next 12 to 18 months is going to be very exciting in South Africa from a crypto perspective. Just expand on that, if you would. Uh, you talked about open banking and the integration of legacy financial systems with crypto. What are these 
new company is going to look like and and where does that integration actually apply you know are they going to be offering traditional uh, banking type products alongside crypto lending how will that work I think it's important to remember something like a bank, a banking business model, isn't a model on its own. It's got various subsectors of different uh, services that they render. So what we are looking to see is, is open banking basically revolutionizing the, the way that those subsectors of the banking business model operates and taking some of the market cap away from there. So to a certain extent, they are trying to make it more efficient and more uh, uh, call it uh, less costly from from a transaction point of view, and they 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 tend to facilitate this by the use of of cryptocurrencies. Now, of course, we've seen a lot of hype in the market of of businesses saying, "Well, they accepting cryptocurrency, or you can now use cryptocurrency to pay for certain uh, um, uh, for certain goods or services, or whatever the case may be." But as soon as you've got these instances where you've got more than one party or counterparty that need to communicate to each other and to to basically facilitate that almost to a certain extent interbank settlement. That's where the cryptocurrency comes into place for from a record keeping perspective. But it's it, it'll be extremely interesting to see how the banks in South Africa, of course, adapt themselves as well to this new element of, of open banking and neo banks being started in South Africa. That maybe some uses cryptocurrency to a certain extent, but they'll definitely challenge the the status quo. I mean, just going back to the events of the last couple of months, and it's really been just a torrent of bad news from beginning to end. But the great survivor in all of this is the Bitcoin network. I'm not talking about Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin, of course, is way down, but the network is doing just fine. I mean, miners are mining, transactions are flowing. What do you think the crypto space will look like when the dust settles? Yeah, I think every second day I've got someone popping into my office or passing me in the hallways asking what's going on with the Bitcoin price or what's going on with the crypto market is, is now the time to buy. Personally, I have all my cryptocurrencies as I, as I believe this is going to be a tool for a revolutionary, free and efficient financial system in the near future. Um, and what's interesting as well, we, we've got these back student programs where we actually get students from the various universities to, to come shadow us and to uh, to, to sit with us for two weeks and we run through everything of being a CA. And I had two of them in my office last week and, and they were asking me questions about cryptocurrency and, and, and trying to explain this to him. I actually asked him just what year were they born? And I think the one student was born in 1999 and the other one being in 2000. And, and I then continued to tell them how I grew up in a, grew up in a era um, back in, in, in the 90s with with internet being introduced in the 90s and its limited use back then. But if you fast forward to today, we can't even properly function without using the internet. And the same will one day apply to cryptocurrencies in my view. We will have Bitcoin being the backbone of the cryptocurrency market, being seen as this digital goal and various other cryptocurrencies which we which have use cases to facilitate um, things like smart contracts, remittances, uh, across-border payments, tokenizing of real-world assets, uh, creating financial inclusion, moving and storing well, doing things that, that you and I have not even imagined. But And hopefully, we won't see the creation of any more meme coins. And it's actually interesting. I was listening to, a, to an interview um, done by Marius from Luno uh, during the course of the week 
we're here to mind it investors to always take a step back, a step back when, when looking at the overall market and the Bitcoin price, which one needs to do in times like this. And, and there's an overall economic downturn because it's not just the crypto market. The, the, the share markets itself is, is down. So to answer your question, once it does settles, the crypto market will probably look a lot like the aftermath of the dot-com bubble back in the 90s. It will weed out these useless and dangerous concepts that do not work and, and assets that, that we have no use for, leaving us with a useful revolutionary assets and business model they will definitely be able to benefit us in the long run. I guess the, uh, the, the takeaway from all of this is that the, the, the bigger, better architected projects are going to survive. And we're talking there about Bitcoin. And I presume you would look at Ethereum and perhaps Solana and, and uh, Polkadot and some of these other larger tokens in the same way. Um, but there are more than 10,000 different cryptos. And I, I don't really see, I've been, I've been monitoring the prices of some of these. Um, some of them are down 95%. Yeah. Um, I, I've even had people, you know, writing me, oh, you got to get into this coin. I won't even mention what it is. Um, you know, because this this is just fabulous and it's paying, you know, 50% yield per, per annum. Yeah. Well, you know, we've seen what happened to these coins that were offering these unsustainable yields like 20% and 17%. They, they, they're just crashing. They, they cannot survive at that. So uh, the great weeding out, I think, as you mentioned, is, is going to continue and it's probably going to continue for the next year. Is that what you see happening? Yeah, so I think you also mentioned it. it's still early days from a crypto perspective. So we've only been in this space just over a decade and it is unfortunate to to see these growing pains where individuals of course lose a fair amount of money or, or millions or billions are, are wiped off the face of a market cap for example so as sad as it is to see it, it's part of the growing pains of what we ultimately want to achieve as well but back to the question regarding all these coins as you mentioned and, and i do get asked this question a lot when say that have you heard about this coin or that coin then it's a, it's a really easy research to see whether there's any use cases for specific currency and and that's my fundamental principle when i look at, at different currencies or investing in something or I look at a specific chain and its possible use cases there needs to be intrinsic value in the sense that there's a use case for for that specific asset so if you think such as the likes of a bitcoin as you mentioned there's the element of scarcity security um there is issues with the scalability but i mean there's more towards the security and the decentralization point of view and and almost being that gold of the crypto crypto standard then there's things like ethereum that was designed to to facilitate things like smart contracts and and, and gives us a, a world that we haven't seen before with bitcoin and doing things that the bitcoin network could not maybe have done and if you look at things like ripple ripple because of the fact once again looking at the blockchain trilemma it was more focused on on centralization uh, and and um uh, and and security so so you're able to transact with ripple and use that for cross-border payments and remittances because i think i think currently ripple is able to transact something like um 1500 transactions in a second compared to visa's 24,000. so there is a use case there and for every single currency that i want to invest in i usually look at the at the underlying technology is there a clear use case for this asset to be used in the near future Vihan Olafia, we are going to leave it there. Thanks very much. And I guess the key takeaway for me uh, is that 
there is definitely a light at the end of the tunnel for crypto and particularly for the, the better constructed projects, right? I, I couldn't agree more with you, Kieran. Thanks so much, Vihan. Look forward to talking to you again. Perfect. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.